I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, I'm Nate Fisher, and I help make the YouTube channel Timeline. And this is our podcast, Timeline Tapes. Our channel has hundreds of world history documentaries to watch, but with some editing, we've started turning them into podcasts so that our audience can listen to them as well. This week, we're continuing our story about the cocaine mummies. If you missed it, you can check back in our feed and listen to part one. We're about to go way back in history and find the link between the cocaine mummies and Ramses II. Some of these interviews in the show were originally conducted in German, But don't worry, we've included the translation. The narrator of the show will be Robin Ellis, and he's joined by Dr. Rosalie David, hospital consultant Dr. John Henry, and Svetlana Balabanova, the toxicologist who actually made the cocaine discovery. The idea of a lost species came to Balabanova because the concentrations in the bodies from Asia and Europe were similar to modern-day smokers. But one thing had puzzled her. At 35 times the dose for smokers, the amount she found in Egyptian mummies were potentially lethal. At first, Balabanova was baffled. But then she had a thought. The high doses in Egyptian bodies could be accounted for if the tobacco, as well as being consumed, had also been used in mummification. Over their 3,000-year history, The Egyptian priests kept the recipes of spices and herbs used to preserve the thousands of people and millions of animals they mummified, a closely guarded secret. The high levels of nicotine in tobacco can kill bacteria. Could it have been one of their secrets? Balabanova looked through old literature about the bodies of the great pharaohs and queens themselves. No longer under the care of the priests, The fragile royal mummies are now kept in strict atmospheric conditions in the Cairo Museum. But Balabanova discovered a story from the days when scientists could still tamper with them. A story that had almost been forgotten. Ramses II died in 1213 BC, a few hundred years before Henot Taui. When he was mummified, every possible skill and every rare magical ingredient was used by the embalmers in their attempts to preserve his body for eternity. For where Henot Taui was only a priestess, Ramses was arguably the mightiest of all the pharaohs. 
His imposing image adorns most of Egypt's famous sites, for he presided over the golden age of its civilization, and as a skilled military commander, won the conquest that made it into a powerful empire. But what interested Balabanova was what happened to Ramses 3,000 years later, when he went on his final royal visit. On September the 26th, 1976, amid all the pomp and circumstance due a visiting head of state, French TV cameras recorded the arrival of the mummy of Ramses II at an airport in Paris. An exhibition about him at the Museum of Mankind was planned. But the body was found to be badly deteriorated and so a battery of scientists set about trying to repair the damage. The bandages wrapped around the mummy needed replacing, and so botanists were given pieces of the fabric to analyze what it was made of. One of them found some plant fragments in her piece and decided to take a closer look. Emerging on the slide, according to her experience, were the unmistakable features, the tiny crystals and filaments, of a plant that couldn't possibly be there. I prepared the slides, I put them under the microscope, and what did I see? Tobacco. I said to myself, that's just not possible, I must be dreaming. The Egyptians didn't have tobacco. It was brought from South America at the time of Christopher Columbus. I looked again, and I tried to get a better view, and I thought, well, it's only a first analysis. I worked feverishly, and I forgot to have lunch that day, but I kept getting the same result. Amid a storm of publicity, people alleged, just as they did with Balabanova's results, that this must be a case of contamination. It's a view shared to this day by Ramsey's keeper at the Cairo Museum, who suspects there is a straightforward explanation. According to my knowledge and my experience, uh, most of the archaeologists and scientists been working on these fields, uh, they are smoking pipes. And I myself have been smoking pipes for uh, more than 25 years. Then maybe a piece of the tobacco dropped by haphazard or just in a way. And to tell this is right or wrong, we have to be more careful. To combat the allegations of careless smoking, Michel Lesco extracted new samples from deep inside the abdomen of the mummy and took care to document the fact with photographs. And as far as she was concerned, these samples again gave the same result, tobacco. So was Lesko's discovery the proof Balabanova needed for an ancient species of tobacco? For a second opinion, we went to the herbarium at the Natural History Museum to find an expert on tobacco who had seen Lesko's published work. She argued that Lesko's evidence would only identify the family from which tobacco comes and not the specific plant. I think that they had 
a certain amount of evidence, and they took the evidence one step farther than the evidence really allowed them. There are some times when you can only go so far down a road towards telling what something is, and then you come against a wall, which you can't go any farther. Otherwise, you start to make things up. Sandy Knapp thought the plant from Ramses was more likely to be one of the other members of the tobacco family, which are known to have existed in ancient Egypt, such as henbane, mandrake, or belladonna. I think it is very unlikely that tobacco has an alternative history because I think that we would have heard about it. There would have been some sort of use of it present in either the literature, in temple carvings, somewhere. There would have been some evidence that we could point to and say, ah, that's tobacco. But I, there's nothing. It's true the official theory is that tobacco originates in South America, but it's also true that there are species in Australasia and in the Pacific Islands. There could have been other varieties, ancient varieties of tobacco that existed once in Asia, and why not in Africa, varieties that have now disappeared. So it's not sacrilege to challenge the official theory. The jury was still out on the vanished species of tobacco, though Michelle Lesko remained convinced her identification had been correct. But she couldn't help with the cocaine for it seemed that not even a single botanist believed in a disappearing coca plant. Finding cocaine in these Egyptian mummies, botanically speaking, is almost impossible. I mean, there's always a chance that there might be some sort of plant there or, or something, but I would think that really it's, there's, some, there's some mistake, something's wrong somewhere, because I can't explain it from a plant point of view at all. For thousands of years, people in the Andes have been chewing coca leaves to get out the cocaine with its stimulant, anesthetic, and euphoric properties. There are actually species of the coca family which grow in Africa, but only the South American species have ever been shown to contain the drug. Since cocaine is not in any other plants, Balabanova was completely mystified, but she thought she might have just one possible idea. The cocaine, of course, remains an open question. It's a mystery. It's completely unclear how cocaine could get to Africa. On the other hand, we know that there were trade relationships long before Columbus, and it's conceivable that the coca plant could have been imported into Egypt even then. An ancient Egyptian drug trade stretching all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. This was an idea so far-fetched, it could only be considered once all the other ideas had been eliminated. The idea that the Egyptians had been able to obtain imports from a place thousands of miles away, from a continent supposedly not discovered until thousands of years later. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes, where we're just about to hear the finale of our exploration into the cocaine mummies. Was it possible that coca, a plant from South America, had been finding its way into Egypt 3,000 years ago? If the cocaine found in mummies could not be explained by contamination or fake mummies or by Egyptian plants containing the drug, there appeared to be only one remaining possibility, an ancient international drug trade whose links extended all the way to the Americas. To obtain incense, myrrh and other valuable plants used in religious ceremonies and herbal medicines, it's true, the Egyptians were prepared to go to great lengths. Even if traders, just as today, might have made all sorts of exotic claims for the source of their products, there is nevertheless clear evidence of ancient contacts as far east as Syria and Iraq. They also extended north into Cyprus, south into Sudan and Somalia, and west into Libya. But America? To the majority of archaeologists, the idea is hardly worth talking about. The idea that the Egyptians should have traveled to America is overall absurd. I don't know of anyone who is professionally employed as an Egyptologist or anthropologist or archaeologist who seriously believes in any of these possibilities. And I also don't know anyone who spends time doing research in these areas because they're not perceived to be areas that have any real meaning for the subjects. But on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, where the moving current of the Gulf Stream arrives in Mexico directly from the west coast of Africa, there is a professionally employed anthropologist who does seriously believe in such possibilities. I think there is good evidence that there was both transatlantic and transpacific travel before Columbus. When you try to talk about trans-oceanic contact, people that are uh, standard archaeologists get very uh, skittish 
and they uh, want to change the subject or move away. Sometimes you see they suddenly see a friend across the room. They don't want to pursue the subject at all. They seem to feel it's some kind of contagious, horrible disease. They don't want to touch or it will bring disaster to them. Why was the mere contemplation of voyages before Columbus or the Viking crossings to America thought to be some sort of curse? It was in 1910 that a group of early anthropologists began to theorize that the stepped pyramids in Mexico might not have been the invention of American Indians. Could the technology have come from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, from Egypt, where there were also stepped pyramids? After spotting other transatlantic similarities, these anthropologists began to argue that all civilization was invented in Egypt and later handed down to what they regarded as more primitive societies. The implication that old world culture was superior was thought acceptable at that time. But the arrival of modern dating techniques showed that the similarities were far more likely to be independent developments. For example, the Egyptians turned out to have abandoned pyramids with steps in favor of smooth ones 2,000 years before the first stepped pyramids occur in the Americas. What's more, the suggestion that American Indians couldn't build their own civilizations became highly unpopular. Despite a brief revival in the 1970s, when anthropologist Tor Heyerdahl crossed the Atlantic on a primitive reed boat, research into ancient contacts with America was frowned on, even if now unconnected with theories of cultural superiority. But the idea that the ability of the ancients to cross oceans might have been underestimated has continued to be quietly whispered about. And over the years, evidence has grown which suggests it might be time to look again at such voyages. To imagine that the Egyptians, who apparently only sailed up and down the Nile or into the Red Sea, might get as far as the Americas, perhaps sounds fantastical. But in science, what is one day thought absurd, can the next become accepted as fact. One senior academic thinks it's important to remember that before the discovery of this Norse settlement in Newfoundland in 1965, theories about Viking voyages to America were dismissed as nonsense. What we've seen is a shift from the idea of Viking landings in America being seen as completely fantastic or, or part, partisan uh, to they're being accepted by every scholar in the field. The fact that evidence of the Viking crossings was hidden has encouraged Martin Bernal to contemplate even earlier voyages that are likewise presently dismissed as impossible. I have no reason to doubt that there were others, but what they were and how much influence they had on American society is very much uh, open to question, but uh, but that transoceanic voyages are possible, or were possible, uh, seems to me overwhelmingly likely. 
a likelihood Banal believes is reinforced by some Roman jars found in 1975 in a place called the Bay of Jars in Brazil. It's been suggested a Roman galley could be buried under the sea, but the interpretation of such finds is heavily disputed. But they would fit the possibility that there was the odd ship that by mistake ended up uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. What they're not going to fit is the idea of sustained two-way contact because there is a huge amount of historical evidence from the Roman world and there is nothing whatever that suggests that such contact existed. They can't have been planted because uh, the, the bay was known as the Bay of Jars since the 18th century so that uh, Roman jars have been turning up and this links up with uh, indirect Roman uh, documentary evidence uh, of, uh, of contact. The Bay of Jars is only one of several oddities claimed as evidence of transatlantic contacts. Also in Brazil is an inscription said to be in an ancient Mediterranean language. Meanwhile in Mexico, there are 3,000-year-old figurines with beards, a feature unknown in Native Americans of the region. Plus colossal statues that are said to look African. And an apparent picture of a pineapple an American fruit has been found in Pompeii. But if tobacco from Mexico or coca from the Andes was carried across an ocean, it apparently need not have been the Atlantic. According to Alice Kehoe, a number of other American plants mysteriously turn up outside what was meant to be a sealed continent but they are found on the other side of the Pacific. The one that absolutely proves trans-Pacific voyaging is the sweet potato. There are also discoveries of peanuts more than 2,000 years ago in western China. There is a temple in southern India that has sculptures of goddesses holding what look like ears of maize or corn. And if American maize might have got as far as India, why couldn't tobacco or coca have reached Egypt? They could have come across the Pacific to China or Asia and then overland to Africa. The Egyptians need not have traveled to America at all or even known where the plants originated, but could have got them indirectly through a network of world trade. But any ancient trade route that includes America is unacceptable in archeology. span I don't think it's at all likely that there was an ancient trade network with America. The essential problem with any such idea is that there are no artifacts to back it up that have been found either in Europe or in America. And I know that people produce examples of possible things, but they're really very implausible. Yet the recent discovery of minute strands of silk in the hair of a mummy from Luxor could suggest trade stretching from Egypt to the Pacific. For silk at this time is only known to have been made in China. Martin Bernal argues that it would be a pity to replace earlier cultural arrogance with an arrogant belief in progress. 
We're getting more and more evidence of world trade at an earlier stage. I mean, you have the Chinese silk definitely arriving in Egypt by 1000 BC. Uh, I think there's been a tendency for modern scholars to believe rigidly in progress and the idea that you could only have a worldwide trading network from the 18th century on is part of our own temporal arrogance that it's only modern people who can do these things. The evidence for ancient trade with America is limited and most of it is disputed. But it can't be completely ruled out as an explanation for the apparent impossibility of Balabanova's results. Results that at first seemed so absurd, many thought they would be explained away by a simple story of a botch-up in a lab. Results that, still without firm explanation, continue to crop up in unexpected places. For in Manchester, the mummies under the care of Rosalie David, the Egyptologist once so sure Balabanova had made a mistake, produced some odd results of their own. We've received results back from the tests on our mummy tissue samples, and two of the tissue samples and the one hair sample both have evidence of nicotine in them. And I'm really very surprised at this. The results of the tests on the Manchester mummies have made me very happy. After all these years of being accused of producing false results, contaminated results, and things like that. So I was delighted to hear that nicotine was found in these mummies and very, very happy to have this enormous confirmation of my work. The tale of Henot Taui shows that in science, facts can be rejected if they don't fit with our beliefs, while what is believed proven may actually be uncertain. Little wonder then that a story that began with one scientist, a few mummies, and some routine tests, in no time at all could upset whole areas of knowledge, we thought, we could take for granted. That's all from this episode of Timeline Tapes. We'll be back with a new series next week. But as always, if you just can't wait for some more history docs, then head over to our YouTube channel. If you want to contact Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to, give us a five-star rating and write a review as well. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 